For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning, A Revelation of the Mystery, Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. So we are back this morning in our verse-by-verse exposition of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. And we're in a section of Paul's letter now that runs from chapter 9 through chapter 11, where Paul is addressing objections that have been raised by the Jews and explaining now the past, present, and future relationship of Paul's countrymen according to the flesh, the relationship to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The vast majority of national theocratic Israel is floundering in unbelief. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. They have rejected the terms of the gospel, and now pursuing a justifying righteousness before God through works of the law, they have not obtained what they have sought, and Israel will perish in her sin. However, as we've been discussing in our consideration of this text, that's not the end of the matter as it concerns God's redemptive plans and purposes. That's not the end of the matter as it relates to Israel. It's the very tip of the iceberg, right? In looking at the outward appearance, we are only seeing that part of the iceberg that lies above the waterline. We are merely touching the hem of the garment. And what has been revealed by Paul now in addressing the condition of fallen and unbelieving Israel are the plans and purposes of infinite wisdom, the plans and purposes of boundless grace in God's dealings with not only Israel, but with all men, including us Gentiles. Paul has been talking about God's sovereign mercy, God's retributive justice, God sparing a remnant of elect Jews, God grafting in elect Gentiles. God employing his wrath in the service of his mercy to save a people for the glory of his name. And this, all of this, Paul says, is the mystery of God. So I encourage you, I commend those sermons through Romans chapter 11 in particular to you to go back and to hear of all those things that Paul has been discussing. Paul says all of this is the mystery of God. Now we often use that word mystery to refer to something that we simply don't know. We don't know it, it's a mystery, right? There's much we don't know about creation. So people will refer to the, the mysteries of the universe, right? Or the mysteries of science. Why do women say or do certain things? It's a mystery. I, we, have, we can't figure it out all the time, right? <laughs> or we use the word mystery in reference to a case that has to be solved or a question that has to be answered. And a really good detective is going to get to the bottom of it, right? He'll get to the bottom of that. He'll solve the mystery. But when the Bible uses the word mystery, the Bible's speaking of wisdom known only to God. Wisdom known only to God. It's referring to knowledge or wisdom that we could never arrive at through human reason. It's not going to be wisdom that you attain to through your own reason. It's knowledge or wisdom that has been concealed from human reason. But it's knowledge or wisdom that God has been pleased to reveal to us through his word. Many of those mysteries, mysteries of the gospel, have been revealed to us by God through his word. We would never have arrived 
and an understanding of the gospel apart from or through, we would never have arrived at that wisdom through human reason. The only way that we can know anything about these things at all is because God has been gracious to reveal them to us. Now, those mysteries of God are often not entirely unknown to us beforehand. It's often that these mysteries are progressively revealed through scripture or progressively revealed over time. You may see them originally revealed in types and shadows. And then you see them gloriously revealed in technicolor splendor in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In that, think with me, God delights in confounding human reason or human wisdom, revealing mysteries, revealing his infinite wisdom to those who place their trust in him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19, the wisdom of this world, Paul says, is foolishness with God. The thoughts of the wise are futile. Right in Romans chapter 1, professing to be wise, the intellects of our day have become fools. But what does Paul say? Paul says, we speak the wisdom, not of ourselves, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Wisdom, which if the rulers, the intellects of our day knew those things, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It's the glory of God. It's God's infinite mind revealed in those mysteries that causes the apostle Paul respond with astonished awe in Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, his ways past finding out. Paul is praising God for his infinite wisdom in those mysteries revealed to us. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's become his counselor? Who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. The great redemptive themes that have occupied the heart and mind of Paul as he writes this letter to the church at Rome are wondrous mysteries of divine wisdom. That which has occupied our time as we've walked verse by verse by verse through this letter to the church at Rome are wondrous divine mysteries, mysteries of God's own wisdom, God's own heart, God's own mind. These mysteries now revealed have compelled Paul to awe, to wonder over the wisdom and grace of God revealed in those themes, wisdom that no man could ever arrive at through his own reason. These are mysteries known only to the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God in a mystery, the wisdom that God has been pleased to reveal to us. So in our text this morning then, in Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 25, Paul is going to reveal to us a mystery. He's been building his case to, the, to get to this point, and the details of that mystery have largely been revealed to us in the case that Paul has laid out. But beyond that, these mysteries, this mystery has been revealed to us progressively in the Old Testament. So it's a mystery that Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles alike can confirm and affirm from that authoritative text of the Old Testament. So Paul's going to turn now again to the Old Testament to help us understand this mystery. That mystery was revealed to Israel through the Old Testament, now has been revealed and has become crystal clear when we look at it through the lens of the cross. God delighting to reveal mysteries through the person and work of his own son. So then having now laid the groundwork 
for his closing statement on this subject, laying the groundwork for revealing this mystery, Paul now draws his conclusion and reveals the mystery beginning in verse 25. Verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mercy, mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Here it is. That blindness, or rather hardness, it's what the word means, Blindness or hardness has in part happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Paul says here that God's dealings, particularly with Israel, as they relate to the ultimate salvation of all of God's people, that God's dealings with men are a mystery. We would never come to an understanding of these things if God had not revealed them to us through his word. And unless God had revealed them, unless they're revealed here by the apostle Paul, we would be left with no understanding. We'd be left to speculate in our ignorance, which is exactly what we would do. We would speculate in our ignorance. We're prone to be puffed up, aren't we? We're prone to be puffed up with our own opinions about these things. This is the way that I think. Here's how I see things. This is the way that I think they should be. So in revealing this mystery to us, first in verse 25, Paul explains his purpose. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. (laughs) I don't want you to be ignorant. Because you're ignorant, you're going to speculate about these things. You may be tempted, as it were. You may be tempted to draw up a bunch of end times charts (laughs) about the way things are going to happen. You may be tempted to divide Israel and the church You may be tempted to make a series of movies you're going to have to apologize for later, right? You may be tempted to speculate about these things. Literally, in verse 25, you're going to end up wise with yourself. Wise with yourself. What Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, is that we're prone to to blind pride. We're prone to blind pride. We're prone to ignorant pride. We're anyone who's raised a teenager knows exactly what I'm talking about. They know everything, right? They know everything. Um, we're prone to, to blind pride. So Paul doesn't want us following after cunningly devised fables. He doesn't want us following. He doesn't want us being arrogant about it. No prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Prophecy never came by the will of man. So Paul says, I'm going to tell you what the mystery is. Blindness or rather hardness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, explaining all that Paul has previously written. And notice the distinction there between ethnic Israel and ethnic Gentiles, right? Blindness or hardness in part has happened to ethnic Israel until the fullness of ethnic Gentiles has come in. And verse 26, it's in this way that all Israel will be saved. Now, the first part of that assertion can be interpreted in light of what Paul has already said in chapter 11. That hardening, as we've seen, is a judicial act of God against the mass of unbelieving ethnic Israel. It's a judgment of God. It's an act of God's retributive justice, not unlike the hardening of Pharaoh in the days of the Exodus. We saw that in Romans chapter 11. We know from chapter 11 that God does not harden all of Israel, all of the Jews in that way. And that's because God has preserved a remnant for himself for the sake of the fathers. They are beloved for the sake of the fathers. A remnant of elect and believing Jews, according to what Paul calls the election of grace. So we know from what Paul has already written that God spares a remnant and he hardens the rest. It's a judicial act of God's retributive justice. Verse 25, blindness 
or hardness in part has happened to Israel. Now, we also know that God's judicial hardening of that large part of Israel is for the purpose of pursuing a greater aim. That greater aim in one part is the full and complete inclusion of the elect Gentiles. Verse 25, that blindness or hardness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So what is God doing there? God is employing his righteous judgment, as we talked about. He's employing his righteous judgment in the service of his saving mercy. As Paul explained in verse 11, the failure of Israel has led to riches for the Gentiles. Now, as we've seen, the, the inclusion of elect Gentiles in God's redemptive plans and purposes is only one part of God's ultimate plan. It's one part of God's ultimate aim. And just as Paul referred to the fullness of elect Gentiles here in verse 25, God had spoken of the fullness of elect Israel in verse 12. Now with that, as we've seen, Paul has referred to a day in the future when God would redeem the fullness of Israel in contrast with their current remnant. Not simply or only referring to their complete number, but Paul's referring to a, a complete or the fullness of Israel in terms of an acceptance in direct contrast with their rejection. In other words, God is going to save Jews on such a scale that that salvation, that redemption is in direct contrast with their current apostasy and unbelief. And this is what Paul is talking about in, in Romans chapter 11. Now, think with me, just as God spoke there in verse 12 of the completion of his work among the Jews in saving their fullness, God speaks here in verse 25 of the completion of his work among um, elect Gentiles in saving their fullness. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And Paul is speaking of fullness here with, in terms of the Gentiles in the same way that he spoke of fullness there in terms of the Jews. That there will be an outpouring of God's grace such there will be a mass of elect Gentiles pouring into the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. An outpouring of God's grace that would eclipse the grace that is being poured out on the Gentiles even now when God saves their fullness. In other words, now put that plan together. Think with me, put that plan together. God is bringing the fullness of elect Gentiles into the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. During this time that God has visited the mass of apostate Israel with a judicial blindness, and although that mass of Israel has been blinded, God is graciously provoking a remnant to jealousy for the sake of the fathers and saving some of them according to the election of grace. However, that partial judicial blindness will continue the current condition of unbelieving and apostate Israel will continue until the fullness of elect Gentiles have come into the kingdom. It's at that time that God then will bring the fullness of elect Israel into the kingdom. He will lift the spirit of stupor that has fallen upon the Jews. He will lift the blindness that has in part been visited upon them. And it's at that time that God will pour out his grace and his mercy upon them in contrast with their current blindness. And he will save Israel, save elect Jews on an unprecedented scale, a scale 
that would rival the growth of the Gentile church, a scale that would result in their fullness coming into the kingdom. And it's in this way, verse 26, that Paul says, all Israel will be saved. That's a loaded statement in verse 26. It's a hotly debated statement in verse 26. When you boil it down, when you consider the context, there are basically only two ways that you can understand that statement. Two ways. First, this is Calvin's view. All Israel there refers to the fullness of God's people, the fullness of elect Jews and the fullness of elect Gentiles in the Lord's church. The church, we know in the New Testament, the church is referred to as spiritual Israel or true Israel. The church is the Israel of God in Galatians, the one people of God, believing Jews, believing Gentiles, both a part here in Romans chapter 11 of the one olive tree of Israel. They're the one olive tree. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter nine, verse six, they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the physical descendants of Abraham. Or Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Galatians chapter six, verse 16, Paul refers to the church as the Israel of God. So we're used to hearing, we're used to hearing in the New Testament, Israel referred to in terms of elect Jews and elect Gentiles in one body, one olive tree, the church of the living God, okay? So in this view then, God saves the fullness of his elect Gentiles. God turns then and saves the fullness of his elect Jews. And so in this manner, all of true Israel will be saved. And that's one way to understand verse 26, right? Based on the teaching of the New Testament, That's a compelling interpretation of the passage. You can easily see how that interpretation would certainly harmonize with the teaching of the New Testament. And although that interpretation would certainly harmonize with the teaching of the New Testament, we simply have difficulty harmonizing that interpretation with our current context. And it has to do both. We have to to interpret verse 26, not only in light of the New Testament, but in light of of our context, Romans 11. So going back to chapter 9 then, the term Israel... From chapter 9 through chapter 11, the term Israel has been consistently used of ethnic, theocratic Israel in distinction from ethnic Gentiles. That's the way that Paul has been using the term, okay? The last 10 times that Paul has used the term Israel, he's used the term in that way to refer to ethnic Israel. In fact, in verse 25, Immediately preceding this verse, Paul uses the term in just that way. He uses the term to refer to ethnic Israel in the context of God's plan to save the fullness of ethnic Israel once the fullness of ethnic Gentiles have come into the kingdom. So the second way then to understand Paul's statement in verse 26 is this. I think this is the best way to understand this statement in its context. And that is to understand the term Israel to refer to the fullness of elect Jews that will be saved. Verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved is a reference to the fullness of elect Israel. Blindness has in part been judicially visited upon the Jews until the fullness of the Gentiles have come into the kingdom, at which time God then, verse 26, will save the fullness of elect and believing Jews. And it's in that way that all Israel all elect Jews will finally be saved. As we've seen, as we've seen, 
That doesn't mean that every single elect Jew will go to heaven. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that all those ethnic Jews whom God has foreknown, predestined, called, and justified through faith alone and Christ alone, they will be glorified. All those that God has called to himself will go to heaven. The heart of Paul's concern here in this entire chapter has been whether or not the ethnic Jewish people has been cast, have been cast away. Right? That's been the concern of the entire section. Paul concludes the chapter with a clear answer to that question. It's in this way that all Israel will be saved. To refer to chapter 9, verse 6, not all Israel are of Israel, but all of Israel who are of Israel will be saved. Right, let that bake your noodle for, <laughs> for a few days. Not all Israel are of Israel, but all of Israel who are of Israel will be saved by God. It's in that way. It's in this, this mystery of God's redemptive plans and purposes that all Israel will be saved. That's the mystery, brothers and sisters, that Paul is referring to. That mystery of how God has not cast away his people, but how God will intend to save the fullness of his people that he has elected. Paul is concerned in this section of text with the past, present, and future state of ethnic Israel. The mystery is concerned with God's plan to save them despite their current state of apostasy and unbelief. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. God forbid. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. They are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And it's in this way, Paul says, that all Israel will be saved. The fullness of Israel will be saved. Now, it's at this point then that Paul recognizes in this, this future outpouring of God's mercy and grace to the Jews, he recognizes that as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved just as it is written, right? The deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, this particular reference is pulled together from several different places in the Old Testament. And as we've seen before, when Paul points to texts in the Old Testament, in this, in this particular uh, case, text in Isaiah or text in Jeremiah, he intends to bring their context to bear upon his point in Romans chapter 11, right? So when we consider these texts, we have to consider these references in their context. Turn first with me to Isaiah 59, Isaiah 59. <clears throat> in Isaiah 59, the Lord explains to Israel that their sins have separated them from the Lord their God, right? Their sins have separated them from God. Look at verse one with me. Isaiah 59, verse one. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated from you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. In other words, God's not being negligent of them. He's... His arm is not shortened, his eyes not blinded, his ear not heavy. It's their iniquities, their sin that has separated them from God. Do you see? Look at verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them. 
in transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt. And what he's talking about there is revolt against the righteous. At this point in time, you have two camps in Israel. You have those who are righteous and those who are revolting, those who have turned to Yahweh in faith and those who are rebelling against Yahweh. So one camp speaking of oppression and revolt, and they're speaking of revolt against the righteous. How so? Verse 13, conceiving and uttering from the heart. That means they believe them. Conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. I think with me. You can make application for yourselves. In the camp of Israel, you have those who intended revolt, those who intended to oppress the righteous by conceiving, even within their own hearts, words of falsehood. It's in this manner, verse 14, in this manner, verse 14, justice is turned back. You can't find justice in Israel any longer. Righteousness stands afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity or fairness, impartiality, justice cannot enter. Verse 15, so truth fails and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The one who departs from evil, the one who turns from his sin to put his faith and trust in God has made himself a prey, made himself a target, made himself a target of whom? Those in the camp of Israel who seek to oppress him. He's been made a prey by Israel. Now, the sin of Israel has culminated here in the oppression of the righteous. The righteous here are unjustly slandered. Israel has plotted revolt through words of falsehood. Israel has stopped her ears against equity, stopped her ears against justice, and Israel has turned away justice so that she might oppress and revolt against the righteous. That's fascinating, isn't it? That's that's what Paul is talking about in terms of the first century condition of revolting Israel against Israel who's turned to Jesus Christ in faith. That's the condition of Israel in the first century. It's the condition of Israel today. It's the condition around these parts in some ways, right? Those who have departed from evil in Israel have made themselves a target. Take note of this example. Verse 15, then the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. Where's the justice? Who's standing up for justice? Verse 16, he saw that there was no man and he wondered that there was no intercessor. Who will stand and proclaim justice in the land? Is there no one who will judge righteously? Is there no one, verse 16, who will intercede for the innocent? Stand up for the righteous. Is there no one who will fight for the oppressed of his people? Therefore, verse 16, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness, this is God, right? He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing. He was clad with zeal as with a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly, he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. And for those who are oppressed among my people, for a lack of justice in the land, for the remnant of my people who have been made a prey 
in their righteousness, verse 20, and here's our quote, the Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. For those who would turn to Jesus Christ in faith, those elect Jews, those believing Jews who would turn to Jesus Christ in faith in the first century, the Redeemer will come to them. Those in turning to righteousness who have made themselves a prey to Israel, a Redeemer will come to them. You can see Paul, even Paul in this very circumstance, can't you? Paul is being chased all over the place by whom? Angry Judaizers, right? Angry Jews following Paul from city to city. Paul is left for dead in Lystra after they stoned him. Paul goes right back into the city to preach the gospel, but they're chasing him to the next city, right? This very thing is happening in the first century to Israel. This is Paul sees in Isaiah 59, a picture, if you will, a prophecy of the current condition of Israel in his own day. That's our quote in Romans chapter 11, verse 26. The Redeemer will come to Zion. The Redeemer will come out of Zion. For those who turn from their sins, for those who are oppressed by injustice among my people, God says, I will send my Redeemer to them and they will be delivered. Paul understands from this text the promise of God to send Jesus Christ as a Redeemer to Israel, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he understands that Redeemer to be Jesus Christ, their promised Messiah. There will will come a day Here's how this fits into Paul's mystery, Paul's plan, Paul's understanding of God's plan. There will come a day when Jesus Christ will redeem those in Israel who turn from their sin and God will reap their fullness. Now that first part from Isaiah 59, we see in Romans 11. The second part of Paul's reverence comes to us from Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27, turn there with me. In part from Isaiah 27, we'll look at one more text together. Isaiah 27 In Isaiah 27, the Lord now speaks of Israel's restoration from captivity. And in speaking of the restoration, he sings a song of his vineyard, where in the song, Israel is depicted as a vineyard of the Lord that God himself tends and keeps. Verse two, in that day, Isaiah 27, verse two, in that day, sing to her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I keep it night and day. Fury toward them is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together, right? There's no one who's going to stand opposed to God and his plans and purposes, right? The nations gather together. God holds them in derision. He laughs, right? They are as dust on the scales. God promises, verse six, or in verse five, or don't let them come against me, or let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me and he he shall make peace with me. God promises, verse six, those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. That's a promise of God's restoration of Israel. God promises to restore them. Verse seven, as he struck Israel, as he struck those who struck him, have you been struck like the nations have been struck? Or has he, has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? Has God dealt with you as he dealt with the Canaanites? In measure, 
God has dealt with Israel, right? In measure, by sending it away into exile, you, God, contended with Israel. He removes it by his rough wind in the day of the east wind. And it's not in terminal or fatal judgment that God does these things. Verse nine, therefore, it's by this, by this judgment, that the iniquity of Jacob will be covered, that the iniquity of Jacob will be purged. And this is all the fruit of God taking away his sin. Brothers and sisters, why are, we, why are we chastened? Why are we chastened? We're chastened so that God might reveal or accomplish in his people, bring forth from his people the peaceable fruit of righteousness. We're chastened that we might not be judged with the world. Right? We're chastened so that God may conform us into the image of his son. God, in that chastening, accomplishes good. He hasn't treated us like a bunch of Canaanites. Right? He hasn't treated us like a bunch of Chaldeans. God has chastened us for our good. Isaiah speaks of a day. That's verse nine. We see Paul's quote there in verse nine. By this, the iniquity of Jacob will be covered. This is the fruit of taking away the sin of Jacob. Isaiah speaks of a day that is coming when God will take away Israel's sin. When God will restore his people from captivity. Paul understands this text not merely to refer to the return of the exiles from Babylon, but the restoration of the Jews in the grace and favor of God in keeping with the new covenant. A fuller, a time in the future when God will restore them more fully to himself. When God will take away their sin. We know that only takes place through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That only comes through Jesus Christ. Now, to make that point even clearer, Paul connects this promise in Isaiah 27 with its new covenant context in Jeremiah 31. And Paul refers to this as a new covenant promise of God. Not only is he going to bring his people back, not only is he going to take away their sin, not only as he provided a redeemer for them who will come out of Zion, this is God's covenant with them, making it absolutely unwaveringly certain to Israel. Romans chapter 11, verse 27, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Turn with me to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, look at verse 31. Again, this is the prophet Jeremiah speaking of the new covenant. This is the covenant that we are made partakers of through faith in Jesus Christ by the sacrifice of Christ, who is our federal head. Verse 31, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for or because I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. God is going to forgive all our sins, all 
their sins. Thus says the Lord who gives sun for light by day, the ordinances of moon and stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Paul's already taught us that God is fulfilling these new covenant promises through a spiritual seed of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. That is certain. But God is also fulfilling these promises to the seed of a physical ethnic Israel, beloved for the sake of the fathers who were elect from before the foundation of the world, whom God will also save through faith in his son. These promises of God apply to Israel. Thus says the Lord, verse 37, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. Has God then, Romans 11, has God then cast away his people? Certainly not. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. God is faithful to his promises. Brothers and sisters, in in thinking about this text, and I, I pray that you'll listen and re-listen and consider these verses. These are truths that we need to commit to our hearts and minds so that we can worship and praise the Lord as Paul does in light of these truths, in light of this glorious mystery, right? But in thinking about this text, we've often prayed here for another great awakening. I find myself thinking about that and praying for it on a regular basis, that that God would would lavish his grace upon a people and save uh, as he has in times past. Um, A great awakening, And I believe here in Romans 11 that Paul is speaking of just such an awakening before the return of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. That Israel's apostasy has meant great riches to the Gentiles. Great riches to the Gentiles will provoke the Jews to jealousy. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, their fullness will mean a great deliverance of Jews, a restoration of Israel, and the gospel will triumph. Let no one say of our eschatology that it's a, an, an eschatology of pessimism, right? It's an eschatology of optimism. The gospel will triumph. Jesus Christ is and will be victorious. There is redemption, turning away from ungodliness, the sealing of covenant grace, the taking away of sins, all that is promised through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel will triumph. That future acceptance of the Jews that Paul is speaking of in Romans chapter 11, will result in life from the dead. That's verse 15. Gospel blessings overflowing before the sound of the seventh trumpet, right before the return of Jesus Christ. Paul mentions this as a covenant promise in verse 27. Paul, in mentioning it as a covenant promise, Paul certifies, certifies this fact with the immutable faithfulness of God himself to his word. In other words, it is certain. It was this truth, this truth that gave rise to much of the post-millennialism that arose in the Puritans, in particular Baptists, after the Reformation. Why were so many of them uh, in in those early days post-millennial? It was because largely this text and others like it, Romans chapter 11, To believe these things, to believe these things does not of necessity make you a post-millennialist. You want to look those terms up if you're not familiar with them. Um, The Bible Bible does very clearly speak of a great falling away. The Bible does speak very clearly of great 
persecution, great suffering for the church that will lead all the way up until the very return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible does speak of those things. Evil men and imposters growing worse and worse and worse. We're in Revelation 11 on Sunday evenings and we're speaking of just such an experience in the life of the church before the sounding of the seventh trumpet when the power of the holy people will be crushed just before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? The Bible does speak of those things. But in our eschatology, there should also be room for Romans chapter 11. Right? Room for times of great blessing, room for times of God's grace being poured out, lavished upon the church in the midst of her tribulation, in the midst, midst of her suffering, in the midst of her persecution. From a simple read through the book of Acts, it's not unusual to see periods of great blessing upon the church in the midst of great persecution, right? They're persecuted and the church is growing, right? The church growing in soil, it has been reddened by the blood of the martyrs. From the text of Romans 11, now we can expect just such an outpouring of God's grace with certainty, the certainty of God's covenant faithfulness. God is working all these things after the counsel of his own will and our God who delights to show mercy is proving that in the sight of all that he is faithful to his word. Not a single jot not a single tittle will fall unfulfilled of all that God has promised. Those promises are grounded in, they are founded upon the very character of God himself. And how in closing, how are we to apply this then to ourselves? Let me give you one example. You can turn there with me if you like to Hebrews chapter six. How are we to think about these things? How are we to take them to heart how are we to worship God in light of them? I think one example comes to us from Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. And speaking of this reference of Paul to God's covenant faithfulness, verse 13, when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, God swore by himself saying, surely, that's, that's our immutable God saying surely, Right? Think about that for just a moment. God says, surely, absolutely, without fail, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, Abraham obtained the promise. Verse 16, for men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them the end of all dispute. They believe it. Verse 17, thus God to what end? To what purpose? Determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise, the immutability of his counsel, God confirmed it by that oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, God's people, might have strong, the strongest consolation we who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. We who have fled for refuge. Fled for refuge to him, for what? Refuge, refuge from his own wrath against our sin? Absolutely, certainly. Who is the book of Hebrews written to? It's written to persecuted Christians, persecuted Hebrew Christians who have fled under severe persecution and have lost everything. 
they accepted the plundering of their own goods with joy, waiting for a better kingdom, a better homeland, right? A better house whose builder and maker is God. They fled to him for refuge, and this is how God comforts them. He says, I confirmed it with an oath, and I cannot lie. You will inherit. Amen? God is faithful to his word. This hope, verse 19, this hope, because it has been confirmed by God in this way, you and I, brothers and sisters, we have this as an anchor for our soul, both sure and steadfast. Why do you need an anchor? Because your boat is going to be tossed by storms and tempests. Currents are going to be pushing against your boat. Why do you need an anchor? You need an anchor to hold you fast in times of difficulty, in times of trial, in times of adversity. We're in it and we have an anchor for our soul. The promises, the covenant promises of God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that hope enters the very presence of God behind the veil where the forerunner, Jesus Christ, has entered for us. Even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let that sink into your hearts and minds. Amen. Let that give you great, great consolation. You who have fled for refuge to God, fled for refuge to the Lord Jesus Christ, lay hold of that hope as an anchor for your soul. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. All praise, honor, and glory to our covenant-keeping, faithful God. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this letter to the church at Rome. Thank you, Lord, that you have revealed these mysteries to otherwise ignorant, unknowing, unlearning, worldly wise, prideful, sinful human beings. Thank you, Lord, in your grace and in your mercy that you have revealed these things to us in your word. That You have revealed them in the person and work of your own son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord that we have these precious promises as an anchor for our soul, that we have the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ as an anchor for our soul, that we who have fled to you for refuge might take consolation in these promises as we face the storms and tempests of this life. Help us to do it, Lord. Help us to take strength, to take comfort in you. Embolden our faith, strengthen our faith, conform us into Christ's image. Help us, Lord, to live for you. Help us to sustain your worship. Help us to see things as you would have us see them. Give us hearts to perceive, hearts to understand. Lord, help us, strengthen us as we live for you in this world. Help us to honor you as we worship, honor you as we serve you. We love you. We thank you for these blessed promises. Thank you for the blessed hope of the church, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ in victory, where we will be gathered to him and will worship you with him. Worship him in all eternity with the gathered saints. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Hello and thanks for listening. 
My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.